Now I'm here. Now I'm here. And now I'm here. Now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. So welcome to the Mainframe Performance Topics Podcast, episode 29. Hello, Trello. <clears throat> Let me try that again. Hello, Trello. All right, is that the one you're going to go with, Martin? <laughs> yes, yes. All right, all right. So let's move on here. Uh, we are Marta Wally from the ZOS Development Organization in Poughkeepsie, New York. And Martin Packer, amateur imitator of voices. So where have you been lately, Marna? Um, virtual share in March, and that was about it. Wow, I usually do a lot of traveling this time of year, but not very much right now. So we've got a follow-up on the Waze topic that we had in Episode 8, which was way back in 2016. So finally, at long last, Apple Maps has added a lot of the function that was in Waze. So it's added accident, hazard, and speed check reporting using the iPhone, also CarPlay software, and Siri into iOS. So Apple Maps kind of catches up with Waze. Yeah, nice to see Apple's catching up with Android stuff. Very nice. Okay, so Martin, explain the title of our episode, and I'll say it in a normal voice. Hello, Trello. What's normal about that? (laughs) (laughs) So, Hello, Trello is actually because of our topics topic, which is, in fact, about Trello. So, what's new? Well, what's new is that everybody really needs to check out my LinkedIn article, and this is about the IBM server that is going to change for FTPS users that use software electronic delivery, which everybody should be using software electronic delivery, but I'm not sure how many people are using FTPS. So on April 30th, 2021, we're going to move FTPS instead of using TLS 1.0 and 1.1, we're going to move up to TLS 1.2. However, TLS 1.2 has now a dependency on ATTLS, meaning that if you use FTPS, you're going to have to make sure you have ATTLS set up. However, if you are an HTTPS user for your software electronic delivery, you are not affected. And in fact, that's a good thing to be not affected with HTTPS. So I have to ask, if you're on any supported ZOS release, can you actually take the necessary steps to meet this prereq for FTPS? Absolutely. And even in some of the more recently unsupported releases. So as long as you set up ATTLS, you are, uh, you're going to be fine with this. But really, HTTPS is so much more easier to use. And we think we have a whole lot more people using HTTPS over FTPS, which is much more difficult. So why not take this opportunity just to move to HTTPS? And now it's time for our mainframe topic, which is how to be a better installation specialist. Yeah, and this section is going to be like Martin's, which was how to be a better performance specialist. So the first thing when we were thinking about doing this topic is I thought, why me? You know, why should I talk about being an installation specialist? Yeah, so this has got to be a very personal view, hasn't it? Yeah, indeed. Um, we've, I've been doing installation type of work for a very long time. So something I like about yours uh, presentation that you've done that I want to kind of apply into my discipline. So first, let's talk about that word better in the title, which really means lessons learned. Yeah, so to me, it's all about personal improvement. It's not really about competing with other people. 
Yeah, and then the other thing also I wanted to talk about in, in this section is the curious choice of installation specialist. Now, don't get hung up on that term. You know, we might as well just have used the term system programmer or, or something else. I agree. What's, what's in the name? You could call me, for example, performance guy or architecture guy or capacity or something. It doesn't really matter, does it? Yeah. Also, I wanted to mention why I think there's a definite reason to be optimistic about being, you know, an installation person for that type of work today. So there's always going to be a need for somebody to know how the systems are put together, how they're configured, how we upgrade systems, and also how they're serviced. You just have to know how to get things to run, and you can call that person whatever you want. And, you know, there will always be somebody like me that will want them to run faster and have all the resources they need for whatever is thrown at them. Actually, I think there's a very similar line of thinking in my presentation where the performance person also knows a lot about how the estate fits together, but from another point of view, namely SMF. Yeah, so we do complement each other coming from different standpoints. You know, maybe we should have a podcast, huh? <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a thought. So... I like to think about adoption needs too. There are so many functions, and I'm going to say they're new functions, but you know many of them are probably a decade old by now. And these new functions, they're just waiting to be used. So there really are two categories here that we're going to talk through in a bit of depth now. Uh, the first one might be those that make life easier for you and make you more productive. So that would be the ones that you're doing for yourself. So I guess zero SMF would be a good example of something that makes you more productive. Yeah, exactly. And also I'm thinking of other ones that I've talked a lot about, which is like using SMPE for service retrieval and using the health checker. And the other category is enabling other kinds of workloads. Yeah, so I can think of things here like using Python and things that you'd have to set up to use Jupyter Notebooks, new technology stuff. And the one that I seem to be fixated on right now is ZCX or Docker containers on, on ZOS. So that's where a really good installation specialist would shine, identifying and enabling new function. Exactly. And it seems now that we have continuous delivery across the entire ZOS stack, that functional adoption really is the driving force now for installation specialists. So we have the pressure to get that function on and in use and to use those enhancement from what seems like light speed development output these days. And this would be coming to you both from your software supplier as well as your application developers. So I think a really good installation specialist, just like a really good performance specialist, would be thinking about how to change the process of upgrading Exactly, because we have a lot more of these changes happening, these updates happening, that would result and should result in having process changes to accommodate them. But to be realistic, some customers are really just trying to stay current, which is obviously very important, and haven't necessarily thought much about new adoption for quite a while. Yeah, and that's a real pity because adopting new function could make you more productive which could in turn give you more chances to actually exploit business-centric function. Yeah, but on the other side, merely upgrading could bring that new function activation out of the box with that release as well. So, for example, System Recovery Boost would be an example of something that is on by default in C15 if you have the support in place. 
So a leather, another thing you'd want to look at is having a role that might broaden that you have to include driving conversations about new function adoption into your enterprise. So a really good installation specialist would take in information they have and also use it in different ways. So could you, for example, query installation CSIs? Exactly. And that would be a really good thing to do. And we could also write sample programs to do that. That's been around for quite a while. And you can write those in C or PL1 today even. Uh, for instance, how you could use this information a little differently is you might want to look for fixes that were installed between two dates. So it seems to me it would be quite handy to be able to find the PTF installed recently that might just happen to cause an incident that you happen to be involved in troubleshooting. And you could even narrow it down to an FMID or a function in that particular case, which would make it even more handy. And to me, I think I've seen cases where a PE in a development plex made it into production. So you might want to know if something in the DevPlex made it into the ProdPlex. So if I think about ZOSMF, ZOSMF has a function that's a cross-global zone query capability. And that would be really ha um, handy if you wanted to look at a particular PE fix and see where it might have been installed across your entire enterprise. Yeah, but you have to use the right tool for the job, of course. Right. And today we don't have ZOSMF doing date range queries, but you know, I could I could see that that would be something nice that we would might might want to get into. Another thing I think you handle in a way that I don't is Palmlib. So could that be a useful thing to examine? Absolutely. So, you know, as an installation specialist, I spend a lot of time in Palmlib, I will pronounce it as. But yeah, um one of the things you might be able to do in ParmLib is to remove unused members or statements and keeping it kind of clean and less confusing, you know, for those that have to maintain it afterwards. So slightly controversially, I would take the view that most of the time it's a good idea to get away from hard coding defaults. Yeah, I, I subscribe to that view also. Also, it's kind of hard because it's not easy today to generally compare a member that you have with the defaults that you have as well. So, you know, if you've hard-coded a default, you'd have to go kind of go verify that that's the default, and then we don't know if that's the system default or you just hard-coded the default. So generally, it's a little bit difficult, which is why I kind of recommend usually removing values if they're just the defaults. But you know what? Some things that we have as counter examples to this, which actually make it a little bit easier, is we do have some components that have tried to help in this area. And the two that come to mind for me are System Logger and ZOSMF. And these are uh, two components that have really helped provide that information to us as system programmers on the display commands. So we also have a few components that can compare the ParmLib members that you've actually encoded to the actual running values. And if you know me, I've also talked about this in a while and how great this is. And I always like to hold up Unix system services and their health check for comparing what you're currently running, maybe something that you've done with a modify command even, versus what you've hard-coded in the ParmLive member that you started off with. And, and these things are very helpful and good to understand and use as system programmers. Another thing I wanted to bring up that is a good skill to have is knowing about researching end-of-service states and this has gotten a lot easier over time and i know that that's always been a very manual and time-consuming thing to do 
Yeah, it, it was so manual and time-consuming that I think a lot of people just weren't able to do it and it fell through the cracks. So now we have ZOSMF, the end of service reporting and software management. That's something I use a lot as an installation specialist, and it's really a cinch to use. So this is a good example of learning new techniques can really sl slicken up the way that you do things. Yeah, and exactly. And a good installation specialist would investigate new techniques, replace old ones, and start using them as they need. So another thing that we can do is we can, when we're familiar with the installation, um, you know, configuration of systems, is we can start to dive into the history that might have some usefulness. The classic example I always give about this, at least in, in my discipline, and it probably applies to yours too, is what is it that happens when two shops merge? And I've seen, as I say, lots of evidence of that in naming conventions and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I've seen that exactly as well from my point of view. So I'll see things like two sets of Parmlib and Proclibs that are really different when you start to dig around a little bit into them. I can also see historical evidence of information like this in the installation metadata. So, you know, that's also interesting to take a look at to see where it came from. So I see things like Alpar names and Kix region naming conventions in what I look at as evidence. Yeah, me too. So beyond the name, sometimes it's hard to keep track of a long history when things have changed. So sometimes you've got to go digging around in some other particular areas. So uh, Parmlib has the statistics. You might have some comments in it. So those might be able to help you as well. And for my part, you know, WLM policy, particularly the XML variant, has some interesting dates and, funnily enough, TSO user IDs in it as well. And I think change management systems are a pretty fruitful way of figuring out what's happened over time. They, they can tell a few tales, I'm quite sure. Yeah, but uh, depending on the change management system, they can really vary in, in what they're keeping track of. So would you say that the move to modern tools such as ZOSMF provide some kind of opportunity to rework the way that things are done. Absolutely, and in a lot more ways than just one. But clearly there are existing ZOSMF capabilities that we can add to as we need more of these capabilities and these skills and process changes. We have the opportunity to put them in ZOSMF and make them easy to use. So also we wanted to talk about you can't really be better by only doing things yourself because no one can know everything. You've got to work with others who are specialists in their own areas. Yes, yeah, so I would say that my performance folks, if you want to call them that, often have to work with systems programmers as one example. Yeah, and uh, we need to work with you too because we really need you to help us guide with exploitation and what to code or what to configure based on the performance evaluations that you've been seeing. And the thing that really came to mind here is when I think about ZBNA, a lot of times that tool has been used to, to assess the exploitation benefits that you'll get, but a lot of times it's around performance and we need to understand that from you. An example I would give is when we're thinking about what memory and zip controls we need to put in place for ZCX. So if, if you know that's coming down the pike, then it's key you tell us. So, so communication. And I would say overall, you know, both of our disciplines are um, going to need to do a lot of communicating when it comes to planning the mainframe estate. We actually have in the notes here the words estate planning, which sounds like something else entirely. But yeah, so when we're, when we're planning evolution of your mainframe estate, uh, this is when communication is really key.
Yeah, you, yeah, your mainframe is state. Your enterprise is state, yeah. But beyond performance, you know, there's a whole lot of other people that we need to work with that bring disciplines to the table that we rely upon. So we're thinking, you know, storage, security, networking. Those are a lot of the folks that I rely on heavily. When I get in over my head with configuration work, with some of their more esoteric functions in those areas. And let's not forget the application people. They are the ones, after all, that we are providing the systems for. Unless, of course, you take the old-fashioned view that applications are just test data for your beloved systems. <laughs> yeah. So the lesson here is use your coworkers to learn from and also to teach them what you know. And I would say when we talk about coworkers or colleagues, it's not just them, not directly in your enterprise, but it's in forums like IBM Maine and the various news groups. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, meet a lot of people of my ilk at conferences and user groups as well. It's been great to share with them and I learn a lot from them as well. So last but not least, learn how to teach yourself. So you really need to know where to find answers. And that doesn't always mean asking people. Sometimes you have to be self-sufficient here. So what that means is that you need to go be able to find documentation on your own or other content collateral and how to search for it. As they say, RTFM. Yeah. And also another thing is how to try stuff, how to get your hands on the keyboard, try it in your sandbox system. And this is where mistakes might have limited impact. But at least for me, this is where I really learn about how functions work and how to really set them up in the right way. For example, we'll talk about display again. There's a whole suite of display commands. And if you look at their output very carefully, you can really learn by their responses. And I've found that I can really dig in and gain systems knowledge much faster by very much detailing what I get back in the response from a display command, looking it up and, and reading more about it that way. That really has helped me learn a lot what I do. But at the end of the day, it's really about making yourself as useful as possible to your shop. And I would say that's, that's very much the same message I would give as a performance specialist. So, you know, any trade, making yourself as useful as possible is the key to not just surviving, but actually thriving. Indeed. And now it's time for our performance topic. And this time is about capture ratios. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce my friend Miroslava Barahona Rossi, who I first met working on a Brazilian customer. Hi, I am Miroslava. I work for IBM since 2004. Uh, most of my years of experience was in performance and capacity management, about 11 to 12 years. And now I'm working as a mainframe architect around for the last two years. So let's talk about what capture ratio actually is. It's basically the ratio of workload CPU to system level CPU as a percentage. Right. There's also an alternative definition that you might exclude all operating system work from productive business-related workload. For example, a system address spaces that serves more than workload could be, in definition, be classified as uh, uncaptured because you cannot uh, attribute the, this CPU or this resources consumption into one particular business-related workload, like, for example, CICS transaction, right, since it serves uh, many address spaces. I like this alternative definition, actually. Whichever definition you want to use, though, 
We're going to be working with SMF data from RMF. So at the system level, we'd be using SMF 70 subtype 1. And that's obviously at the machine level as well as at the individual LPAR level. And for the workload, we would be using SMF 72 subtype 3, which gives you granularity down through the workload to the service class and also to the report class. But of course, none of this in terms of capture ratio calculation is actually in an RMF report. Now, I think one thing to say very early on is that generally capture ratio isn't 100%. So let's think about why that might be. So why isn't capture ratio generally 100%? Well, Martin, it will never be because, for example, let's take I.O. interrupt handling, CPU cycles. There is part of the I.O. handling activities that are captured, but part of it would not be fair to attribute it, uh, for example, to the workload that was executed and all of a sudden got interrupted, right? So we'll never be 100% because those types of uh, CPU cycles spent in another uh, request, another address space request, would not be fair to attribute it to the address space that was interrupted, right? So I think fairness is a key concept in, in this. And we'll talk about some examples later on as to why we don't hit 100% with some particulars. So I think a key question is why do we even care about capture ratio? Well, I would say for start that commercial considerations come into play when we're billing for uncaptured cycles versus captured cycles. Yeah, and also worrying about uh, the capture ratio is as a concept that it needs to be understand first. Uh, you need to understand your data. And if it's really, if you think that your capture ratio is really low, and a threshold that we commonly use is below 80%, we consider it low. There might be an opportunity for tuning, but you first need to understand your data, your workload, your capture ratio level. And after that, you may think of opportunity of tuning, but not worrying too much on a threshold or in a certain level of percentage of capture ratio. Right, having said we shouldn't worry about it too much, what do we think is a reasonable range of values for capture ratio? Well, I have seen usually 80 to 90% as a common range, right? But uh, lately I have seen more like 85% to 95%. And we'll talk a little bit more about that and why is that. Yeah, and I would agree 85-95% is typically what I see. Right. So, for example, over time, part of the I.O., like I said earlier as well, part of the I.O. interrupt handling wasn't captured and now it's captured. Also, when we see an I.O. intensive workload, we tend to see the capture ratio more close to the 80s than to the 90s. So it all depends on the workload mix. And I think we'll talk more about that, too. Yes, I think we will. So, so back to the uh, improvement in IO-related capture ratio. I think that work was done because people tend to worry about capture ratios. And I would say in terms of the IO-intensive work, you know, data and memory techniques, in, you know, like buffering better, have been what have tended to make the work less IO-intensive and hence improve the capture ratio. 
I think something else we should talk about is zip capture ratio versus general purpose engine capture ratio. And generally, I see zip capture ratio a little bit higher than general purpose capture ratio. Right. Do we calculate blended GCP and zip? I think you can. I think it's probably better to actually calculate them separately. Obviously, that's more work. But I think the different behaviours make it worthwhile to calculate those differently. Let's talk a bit more about why capture ratio could be low. And I think it comes into two categories. There's the common cases and there's the less common cases. So let's start with the common cases. Right. I have seen more commonly the low capture ratio when the CPU utilization is low, right? When we use it to have a higher paging activity, I don't see this happening anymore on recent uh, data on clients. And also when we have a high IO rate activity, we we'll also see the capture ratio more close to the 80% than to the 90s. Also the less common inefficiencies would be, for example, inefficiency in ACS routines, fragmented storage pools, affinity processing, uh, account code verification, sleep process, and other less common causes. Right, that's a pretty long list, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Okay, so you did an experiment, and that's actually part of the reason for doing this topic right now, where you were correlating capture ratio with a whole bunch of things. Right. So I got a customer data right, that I've been working along the years here. And I always uh, used to see the capture ratio there in the old days, <laughs> uh, about 10 years ago. I would see, for example, at 79, 78% capture ratio. And then across time, I was able to notice that we got above a little bit above the 80s, but never close to the 90% capture ratio. So I did this experiment here to correlate the different key performance indicators with capture ratio uh, metric. So I used the correlate uh, Excel function, right? Equal corral in a range of the data. And uh, this particular Excel function tells me if the two metrics, two different metrics, two different columns, is correlated to each other when the value is above 85%. By the way, I think that's a really useful tip in Excel. So thank you for that as a drive-by. Yes. And uh, for example, let's say the capture ratio goes down when the CPU utilization goes down, which was the case here. Then the two metrics are correlated and the numbers were above 85%. And if you have, for example, two columns that do not correlate, you won't see, let's say, this behavior together, right? And also you won't see a value above 85%. So I did this experiment here. This is a Z13 client. And uh, I, as I said, normally nowadays you don't see too much paging activity. The clients have many real memory available. So this was not the case here in this client. The low utilization had a strong correlation as we, we normally see, right? It is common to see when the CPU utilization is low, we see also the capture ratio low. So 
So I would be inclined to actually exclude the low utilisation intervals and maybe the high utilisation intervals, the very highest ones of all. What do you think? I think it's a good idea, Martin, because, uh, for example, when there is low utilisation, you do not have too much business-related workload and you will only see, let's say, the system workload and an idle uh, system. So I think it makes sense to exclude the periods where you cannot do a very good capture ratio calculation, right? Right. Well, as I said, I saw this client over the years, about the last 10 years. And also, I noticed that, as I said earlier, I noticed that I used to get a 78, 75% capture ratio. And lately, I, I see 82, 83%. So it got a little bit higher. But it has nothing to do with machine generation. I got into the conclusion that over the ZOS releases, the new releases, it takes some of the operations, as I said as well, the I.O. handling process. Part of the I.O. handling started to be captured and other activities that in the past it, it was not captured started to be captured. And that is more related to the ZOS releases and not to the machine releases. I would also think it might vary a little bit depending on workload mix, batch versus transactional, but I don't know if you really looked at that here. Yes, this client has IMS transactions, IMS database, CICS transactions and DB2 databases. So it is not an IO intensive, but at the end, what uh, what caused the capture ratio low was the logical to physical ratio. So this client has 10 LPARs across three engines. So the logical to physical uh, ratio is seven to one. And uh, that's pretty extreme, actually. Yeah, exactly. It was done a merge. They had two mainframes and now they have one. So we have also a work to do on merging LPARs and eliminate those extra cycles, CPU cycles, only to handle these cache movements, let's say. So as architects, we know that's actually quite difficult to do the merging of the LPARs. So that's probably a long-term project. Exactly. Long-term project, yes. So this is already happening, but lots to be discussed because there are some decisions that were made, let's say, decades <laughs> behind. And we need to double check with the application owners if it's good, if you can redesign a little bit the LPARs and not hurt the application. So yeah, these conversations are going on. So this is an interesting story, I think. It's often the case that um, where we've come from and how things came to be is important. So boys and girls, history is important. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> and I think one of the lessons here is actually this is entirely worth doing with your own data to understand these things. Of course, yeah. I think the main objective here is first to understand your environment the workload mix, right? And uh, you can, for example, experiment doing a correlation of metrics like I did 
But also, I think it's more effective if you exclude one possible cause of low capture ratio at a time, right? So that way you'll, you'll see if there is... Uh, go ahead. So I think one of the key things here to do is to realize that correlation isn't in fact causation. So you really do have to look for the real mechanism. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So one of the mechanisms is look for, for example, the behavior, right? The workload mix, the behavior of your system and eliminate causes one by one. For example, start with low utilization and paging will probably be a good start. So those are the common cases. So I think that makes perfect sense. So this is where I get to go off the cuff a little bit. So let's talk about other kinds of capture ratio. And there's really a couple that come to my mind. The first one is coupling facility CPU, where the capture ratio is always 100%. And this is because even at low traffic, the CPU per request is inflated to actually make sure we have 100% capture ratio. So all the CPU recorded by the coupling facility is allocated to some structure or other. So that's one case and it behaves slightly oddly. And I've seen this one many times. The other thing to think about, though, is if we go down a level from workload versus system, how about SMF30 versus Kix110? So in this case, we're talking about the address space view of CPU versus the work running in the address space CPU's view of work. So you know, the difference here is the management of the region on behalf of the transactions. Right. Think of a six region as a running a small operating system, right? I think that's a fair way to look at it. Now, I think you have to understand that Kix 110 records aren't a scalable thing to record. And when I say Kix 110 records, I should say monitor trace, so transaction level. So you're probably not going to, in the general case, be able to calculate the capture ratio within a Kix region. So to summarize, I think it's quite clear that you shouldn't get too upset if you get a capture ratio substantially lower than 100%. And that can be quite normal. Exactly. I would recommend that you first understand your normal, understand your workload, and what is the capture ratio level when you're running under good performance, right? Right, I would agree. And, and I would say you need to be aware of the relationship of your normal to everybody else's, but actually be careful when making a comparison. Exactly. This is very workload dependent. And you need to, let's say, be somewhat on the range of 80 to 90s, but depending on your workload, you'd be more close to the 80s or you'll be more close to the 90s. So, <laughs> right. This all speaks to understanding your data and the causes of capture ratio variation. And you could actually see it as a way of trying to find a way of improving your capture ratio. Right. So uh, let's take an example here. You could, if you do... Too much I.O. rate, and that's your main reason to have a low capture ratio. You could find uh, application tuning activities to minimize this, let's say, high I.O. activity. So the bottom line is keep track of the capture ratio over the months and years. Understand it, why it is like it is, and think of uh, tuning opportunities where you can let them maximize your performance in the first place and not worry too much about a number <laughs> of capture ratio percentage, right?
Now it's time for our topics topic, which is called Hello Trello. So Martin, for our listeners that may not know, what is Trello? Right, so it's based on the Kanban idea and it consists of a number of things. So first of all, we have boards. And on those boards are a number of lists. Yeah, and these lists are arranged across the top of the boards. And also there's the idea of having cards, which actually contain the content. So the content would be, you know, paragraphs of information that you might have, checklists, which we use a whole lot. Uh, Also, you can incorporate pictures or links. And these cards can be moved around between lists. And the way you do that actually is by simple drag and drop. So really, it's, it's anyone can do this. This is a very simple thing to do. It's a very simple thing to do, and it could lead to what on Wikipedia is known as editing wars. <laughs> yeah, and, and exactly. That's right. And maybe there are some security controls for who's allowed to move a card. I haven't investigated it that much, but yeah, it, it can lead to that definitely. So one of the nice things that we've been using is the ability to do a template in Trello, which is actually one that we use when we plan for podcast planning. And another nice feature is something called power-ups, which add function. Yeah, and so these are created by organizations and they allow connections or tools that you can use to you know, strengthen your usage of Trello. A popular one is Butler. Yes, and having said there are power-ups, one of the things we want to talk about this time is other ways of adding function. So we'll get to that sometime later in this topic. Yeah, so I think we can talk about those uh, abilities to add functions that you don't have to pay for. Yeah, I think that's one of the key things here, unless you count your time as being worth something. All right, so, so let's look at uh, Trello. It's, it's multi-platform, plus it has a web interface as well. And it's provided by a company called Atlassian which a few of you may well know as the providers of a wiki software package called Confluence. In fact, actually in IBM, we used to use Confluence as the basis for our wikis. Yeah, and Atlassian also makes Jira, and this is an agile project management tool. And, you know, if you think about how we are modernizing development, you could think that we are definitely going to be using Jira because that is a very good tool for doing agile project management. And coming from outside the development, I think it's nice to see development adopting the most modern tools. Yeah, I I think you'd be surprised how modern development is nowadays with our agile tools. And and I'm hoping that the developers themselves are enjoying using them as well. So why are we talking about Trello? Well, you know, it gets back because we've talked about uh, our podcast and how we actually create our podcast. But we use Trello for our podcast planning specifically. And the way we do this is actually one list on our board per episode. Yeah, and within the list, we have a picture and we put it at the top and that's what becomes our cover art for our episode. So I don't know how many of you even realize we have cover art. It obviously depends on how you get your podcasts. (laughs) Yeah, it's true, Martin, because we do argue a lot about what our cover art should be. We always try to have a sense of humor about it. So I'm not even sure if people even notice it, but it is uh, something that we have fun with. So did you know that we had chapter marker graphics as well, Martin? Gosh, I'll I'll be modern and very few people probably even see those either. But seriously, the way we do this is within our episodes, which have a certain amount of structure, which I'm sure long-time listeners would have noticed, each card is what we would use for a topic. 
Yeah, except the first card on our list is our checklist so that we know as we go through with each of the segments which ones we've completed and which ones we still have to record. So we use templates for our podcast, and these are for creating and hatching new episodes. And that template obviously has a card for each episode topic, as we just discussed. But our outlining remains done the way it always has been, which is using iThoughts, a mind mapping piece of software. Yeah, and we've mentioned that many times. It's a, it's a tool that really has done us well for podcast planning. And I expect we'll mention it again, perhaps gratuitously sometime. So one of the things you can do with Trello is move cards around. And sometimes we actually do that. We do move cards around between episodes. Yeah, and we've had to do that recently more than ever as we swizzled around episode 28 and 29. Yeah, so with planning two episodes at the same time, there's been quite a lot of moving of topics between episodes to make it work right. So, Marna, how do you use it quite apart from our podcast? Right. So what I do is I organize my daily work for it, which I have a lot of projects that I'm working on and some of them are quite different. And so what I do is I personally put my workload onto Trello and I also use the calendaring function. Previously, I used to put important dates of, you know, events that were happening or things, uh, deadlines like that. I would usually put that on my own personal calendar on Lotus. But now I found that if I put it on Trello, I can get a lot of power from that and associate it with some of the work items. So I've really enjoyed doing that. For instance, one of the most important things we had was the ZOS 2.5 preview announcement. And we had a lot of activities that were going around that. And so I had to make sure that I got that on my calendar correctly. I put GA dates um, of other products. I put announcement dates, beta dates, uh, really things that are real important that I make sure that I can deliver the materials that we need for. That's what I put on my Trello board. So really it's about keeping track of deliverables in your case. Yeah, yeah. I don't put my meetings on there. It's mostly the bigger, you know, big milestones that I put on there that would probably span too much on my Lotus Notes calendar. So no meetings on there. That would just be too petty to, to stick something like that on Trello. But, you know, uh, we're thinking we're going to be using Jira in development. So this tie-in might also come quite handy for that activity as well. So Martin, how do you use Trello? Well, I really have two use cases, one more successful, I would say, than the other. So let's deal with the more successful one first. So in our team, which is a small consulting and troubleshooting team, we have engagements and we track them using Trello. And so our board has got four lists. The first list is potential engagements. And then we have active engagements, you know, ones we're actually working on, got real customer data and so on. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we have engagements that don't quite happen, so they go on a dormant list. But we like to see the fourth category, the fourth list, which is completed. So as we work through an engagement, it moves from potential into active, hopefully not into dormant, and then into completed. So we, we really were tracking engagements here. There was an interesting debate, actually, in the team as to the structure of our use of Trello. The debate really was between one board per engagement, which personally was something I was um, advocating, and the one that actually won out was one board for all engagements, and each engagement then is just literally a card that moves, as opposed to the parts of an engagement, because some of our engagements get to be quite complex. And I think the argument really was in favour of avoiding micromanagement and just moving stuff around for the sake of it. But I think 
and this is the reason why I mention it, that there is actually an interesting debate if you're thinking of using Trello about what level of granularity and what to actually trap on each of the cards and in the lists and, and maybe in multiple boards. So that was one use case. So the other use case, which wasn't really so successful, is in tracking my GitHub projects, but that's somewhat dormant now. Yeah, so let's talk about why and why that wasn't so successful. Well, the key issue with that one was interoperability, because what I was trying to do was to take a new GitHub issue and use it to create a new task in my task manager, which is OmniFocus, and also do a branching write to a Trello card. So, you know, Martin, there is a Trello power-up for GitHub. And in this power-up, issue, branches, commits, pulls, you know, they can all be mapped into cards in Trello. Yes. Well, I, I tried that one and it seemed really quite fragile to me and quite inflexible. And I wasn't really convinced that changes in state for an issue were actually getting suitably reflected in Trello. I guess the three-legged stool problem of from issues in GitHub into OmniFocus tasks and into Trello cards is really very much my problem because it creates a large amount of fragility. Yeah. And, you know, fragility in automation is always a problem, right? Yeah, it's always something you have to consider. So talking about fragility in automation, you know, what what is there? So I'm going to talk about one of these and you're going to talk about another one. So, so the one I'm going to talk about is iOS shortcuts, which is really a, a very nice form of automation on an iPhone or an iPad. It's got a very well-built-out model as far as Trello is concerned. So, for example, you can automatically create a card in Trello, and you can equally retrieve lists and cards from a board. So that might be a way to keep the three in sync, GitHub issues and Trello cards and OmniFocus tasks. It just might be. Yeah, I... I I think it might be, and I clearly you're going to fiddle with this and, and hopefully let us know what you find, because this does sound like an interesting thing to explore more. So as anybody might know, my little automation app that I like is IFTTT, and I, I've used this quite extensively for other things. Yeah, and actually, I have an automation that sends me a notification when somebody in my team updates one of our team's uh, engagement cards. So, so I play with like, if this and that as well for this. It actually uses Pushcut on iOS, which is uh, something we've mentioned in episode 27, Topics Topic. So Trello provides an if this then that trigger, which means when something happens in Trello, it drives an if this then that applet. And in my case, the if this then that applet creates a notification on the iPhone or iPad and Pushcut on the iPhone or iPad actually handles the notification service and that enables me to kick off a shortcut to actually do some automation. Yeah, but you encountered some issues. I'm always breaking things, aren't I? So <laughs> You are. <laughs> You're a tester. <laughs> yes. Maybe that should be my next job. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so um, the first thing is that in Trello into If This Then That, each list required its own if this then that applet. Well, you'd say, well, why don't you just duplicate an applet and change the name? Unfortunately, in if this then that, you can't duplicate applets. So, you know, you have to create them from scratch, which is a right nuisance. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm, we've mentioned that one, I think, before, and that, and that is true. So hopefully that will be fixed in IFTTT someday. I'm giving them enough money. I should hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> So, you know, 
Automation, I have to say, might well be a better alternative to power up because you can build them yourself. You can make them as flexible as you like and you don't have to pay for them. Yeah, there's something to be said for that and personalized, totally personalized for what you want. So what do we actually think about Trello, Mona? Well, you know, overall, I like Trello. I have been using it to make myself more productive. I would like a couple of more functions, and I can see them being added over time because it's popular and people are using it. And as they have more users, I think they'll add more functions to it. So I do like it. I like it too, actually. I have some reservations. First one is there's something in me where it seems to be dragging cards around is a little bit of a silly way of carrying on. But that's only a very minor thing because I do lots of drag and drop stuff anyway. More to the point, though, is I think there are more compact and richer ways of representing things like tasks. And actually, more serious than that, I think, is it's a bit of a waste of screen real estate. So firstly, cards aren't really that compact, as I've just said. and You can only arrange lists all in a single row, which means a couple of things. Firstly, it means that if you have too many lists, you end up having to scroll off to the right and maybe to the left. The other thing is you end up, if you're not lucky, with the bottom half of the screen essentially empty. So that's wasted real estate. So so I think actually they could do a better job of laying things out. But, you know, having complained about the compactness of Trello, yeah, I can hardly complain because I've got bubble charts in outliners that are equally not so dense in terms of information. Yeah, I totally agree with you with that screen real estate. Maybe a little personalization capability would be helpful there. But overall, I think we're finding Trello quite useful. Yes, I think we are. And I think the parting shot I would leave you with on this one is a key lesson that I've learned, as with all such things, is you let the structure settle down over time. You don't really set out with a fixed structure in your mind as to what's going to go in which board and which list and what a card represents. Exactly. And if you think about Agile, that's what it is. You iterate and you improve every time. So I think it will settle down over time. So as we come to the end of this episode, let's talk about places we expect to be speaking at. So looking ahead, way out in November, uh, the 2nd to the 12th, GSC UK is having a virtual conference. And given that it's in November, I'm hoping that there'll be a lot of two, five topics on that agenda. And I'm also looking forward to that conference. And I'm working up a few ideas that I personally find really quite interesting for that as well. So Martin, what do you have on your blog? I know you've been very active on it recently. Let me talk about a couple of things to do with Raspberry Pi, because I've been doing quite a lot with that. So the first one is... Pi as a protocol converter. Now, I had a technical problem between GitHub and iOS where GitHub was going to emit some JSON in a different format from what I needed on iOS. So I wrote a protocol converter using um, Apache web server on the Raspberry Pi and PHP. So I wrote a blog post about solving that little technical problem, which was kind of fun. The other fun one was actually, again, on Raspberry Pi, but this time using a touchscreen. So I could use the Raspberry Pi as an automation platform, meaning you press a button on the touchscreen and it goes and does something on the Mac or somewhere else. So it's a couple on Raspberry Pis. So that's very firmly in the topics category. In the performance category, I wrote a blog post called SMF70 Subtype 1 
where some more of the wild things are. And this is all about the age-old problem of how RMF has to make a sensible job of writing multiple SMF 70 subtype 1 records in an interval from a system sometimes. Also related to RMF was a blog post called Coupling Facility Structure Performance a Multi-System View where I had what I thought was a bright idea and I think I was right about plotting multiple systems response times to the same coupling facility structure as their loads or rather their request rates varied. So that was kind of a nice one as well. And finally, I did an experiment on WLM samples as recorded by RMF. And the net of that one is something that people probably already knew, but it was nice to see when you did the maths, which is the using CPU samples include also the using CPU samples where the work was zip eligible. So zip on CP samples. And actually, we went and fixed our own code to reflect that, um, that particular thing. So that's five, which actually brings me up to date in terms of all the blog posts I've written. First of all, my blog has moved. So it was on the share.org website. And if you've noticed, the share.org website has undergone a major restructure and they've moved my blog. So the links that you might have had for my old blog uh, don't work anymore. So I will put the new blog link into the show notes for you. But the old articles are still all available. They have just been moved over to the new locations. So I've done three blog posts recently. First one, I talked about a, a gift that keeps giving. That's an interesting one to take a look at. Also, the software electronic delivery change and taking notice. This is a little more information than what we mentioned in the intro for this episode. And the last blog that I have recently done is ZOS 2.5 and how it will install. And it's just making sure that everybody's going to be ready with ZOSMF so that they can install ZOS 2.5 uh, using ZOSMF. So that's a good one to take notice of. So we welcome feedback as always. Yeah. And how you can contact us is by emailing mwally at us.ibm.com or I'm on Twitter as mwally also. So on Twitter, I'm Martin Packer and email is martin underscore packer at uk.ibm.com. So it goes. You know, I can't imagine anybody still listening to this, but if you are, you must be among our 3,000 closest friends. Yeah, this episode's gotten pretty long, so I can't imagine anybody's here at this point. But Martin, uh, the after show. So let's talk about, you've got a lot about Raspberry Pis going on, I noticed, at least from your blogs that you talked about, right? Yes, I do. And it's kind of a funny thing, actually, because you buy a load of pies and then you see another one announced and you buy that and then another one gets announced and you buy that. And they're kind of like toys or maybe they all breed like rabbits or some, something like that. But you never really have a clear idea what you're going to do. And then over time, you begin to find use cases. So that, that's why I've got those two blog posts, because I found a couple of use cases and I'm finding things that, quite frankly, iOS won't do that are better done on a Raspberry Pi. And so, yeah, it, it, it's funny. Things that seemed a bit like an extravagant suddenly find a place in, in your life. So that's really the Pi. So how many Raspberry Pis do you have right now then? Oh, gosh, that's tested me. I think it's four. So let me just list them off. So I have a Raspberry Pi 3. 
I have two Raspberry Pi 4s and I have a Raspberry Pi W. Actually, it's five because I bought a Raspberry Pi W without any headers soldered on it. And I went, I'm not really up to soldering headers on. So I've now got a fifth one. So five Raspberry Pis. How's that for a small club? Well, that's good. I I have one that is uh, not ever been used. I got it for my son. He wasn't too interested in it. So I'm going to give you that one and I'm not even sure how old it is. So. <laughs> That sounds good. Thank you. Yes, I'll, ta- I'll, I'll take it. God knows what I'll do with it, but I'll take it. Yeah, well, yeah, you'll take it and they say, well, it's so old or whatever. I don't want it, which is fine because it's just sitting in my attic right now. I can use it for testing, can't I? So uh, actually, I mean, to be serious for one moment, Raspberry Pis are pretty cheap. So if you were thinking of buying one and didn't quite know what to do with it, I would say, unless money is extremely tight, I, I would go ahead. Um, so yes, it's that kind of thing. It's not like a major purchase. All right, so now let's move on to a, yeah, I want to move on to a different topic now. <laughs> Raspberry Pi. I mean, I I enjoy hearing about your experience with them, but like I said, I'm I haven't had enough time to play around with them. What I've been doing is watching a lot of movies, though. I think I have actually come to the end of Netflix. Everything I've wanted to see, I think I've exhausted Netflix, at least for what I want to see on it. And so we've recently subscribed to the Criterion Collection, if anybody knows what that is. So we're really enjoying the Criterion Collection. And we've been watching a lot of movies on it, a lot of foreign films, a lot of good directors. I really like Krzysztof Kieslowski, a Polish director. Been watching a lot of his stuff. Louis Mal, um, French director. Love that stuff. And let me tell you, there's a lot of old movies, good movies, um, art films, like I said, foreign films. This has been great. I really like the Criterion Collection, and it really has opened up a lot of more while I'm in quarantine watching even more movies. <laughs> So, so, so I noticed you haven't mentioned Kurosawa or Abel Gans or Eisenstein. No, not so much them. Uh, my husband does watch them, but I'm kind of, uh, I kind of do different times than he does. So you're missing, you're missing a treat or umpty. So I've been a bit lower brow, I could say, or maybe not, because um, I've basically been watching a lot of TV shows. So to cut a long story short, as part of a very nice bundle. Between which Apple offered me, which has got all sorts of other things like games and like storage and two other things and family sharing. I've got Apple TV Plus, which is a subscription TV service, which may well have movies fairly soon. But meanwhile, I've been watching a number of their original series. And the first one is for the space fan called For All Mankind, which is now into its second season. And basically the premise is, without spoiling the plot, what would have happened if the Soviets had made it to the moon first, which they very nearly did. That's an utterly fascinating, beautifully made series. The second one, which is a bit controversial in our household, is Ted Lasso, which is supposedly about football, but not really about it. It's a very good-hearted comedy series, which also has been renewed. And a lot of people really, really like Ted Lasso. The final one I want to talk about is something called Mythic Quest, which sounds like a game. Well, it is like a game. What it actually is, is a comedy series about a computer game development studio. They actually did a very nice one-off for lockdown, which is worth watching ahead of the new season, which is just about to start. So, you know, I've done a lot of TV watching on on Apple TV+, Plus, getting my money's worth 
Yeah, it sounds good though. But Apple TV, it's like, man, we buy so many subscriptions to, you know, watching movies and TVs. I we're not going into the Apple TV arena. We've already got so much, especially with the Criterion Collection now. I don't think we need yet another uh, streaming service here. Well, you know, the good thing about things like TV Plus is they're part of bundles, so the marginal cost for getting them is often zero. But you might not have that bundle. You might not want the storage. I've got two terabytes of storage through my Apple subscription, which actually we need as a family. We're not a very big family, but we need it because of things like photographs, mm-hmm. videos we might have shot. Yeah, and, and on our side, we've been doing Google. We we buy storage on Google, so uh, the competitor. <laughs> okay. So, Martin, I really think that's a wrap. Let's let's close down this, this episode. We're wrapping again.